As we did last night, we're going to have two of our students give a uh, brief testimonial of the impact of Chafer's Seminary on their lives and ministries. The first is from a man named Dane Rogers. Where is he from? South Korea. South Korea? South Korea. Okay. Hi, my name is Dane. I'm a current student at Schaefer Theological Seminary. I came across this seminary in the last year of my university studies and was able to audit a course during my final semester. I decided immediately to uh, continue with Schaefer Theological Seminary and pursue certificates in Bible teaching and Bible exposition. Uh, at the time that I found Schaefer, I was in a home group Bible study going through Genesis and was uh, finding it very difficult to study on my own. There were a lot of gaps in my knowledge. Uh, I had recently come to Christ as a true faith, and I was seeking more information and more information that was firmly rooted in uh, what I came to find out was a historical, contextual, and literal interpretation. Uh, so I uh, took an audit course with Schaefer, with Ray Mondragon, and then registered as soon as I graduated to take uh, credit courses. I took a Bible exposition course with Ray Mondragon and Christian framework with Charlie Claff. I found them very, very helpful in my own personal walk, in my studies to help others around me, including my family. And I find it very helpful in uh, preparation for someday perhaps having a family. I'm currently 23 years old and I'm living in South Korea. Uh, Schaefer allowed a lot of flexibility with the study schedule. I am able to join the class from all around the world. And as I understand, we've got people in Europe as well. So it's, it's a very diverse and flexible way to um, host a class. And uh, I've not found any trouble with it at all. In fact, it's been very encouraging to see brothers and sisters from all across the world joining to learn more about Jesus and the reason that brings us all together. So uh, I've, I've found Schaefer Theological Seminary to be an incredible encouragement in my own life and a place that I, I really enjoy being at and hope to continue studying. Okay, and our second testimonial is one of our professors, Ray Mondragon, who's also involved with Jim Myers Ministries, goes over there and teaches hermeneutics, also goes to Brazil and has been down there with Jeff Phipps. And um, he's also part of a group of pastors. He's part of a group of pastors who meet together using GoToMeeting every uh, Friday morning. And we are we discuss a lot of different things, work through different books, and raise all, also a you know very significant part of that uh, group and ministry. And we're we're glad to have him. So. Uh, that's the introduction. Any of you other pastors who say, wow, what's this about Friday morning? And if you're interested in joining us, it's from 8.30 to 10 Central Time. So just contact me and I can give you information. Thank you, Robbie. Well, we've been hearing a lot about hermeneutics, right? 
<clears throat> from all of our speakers, so I thought I would uh, teach the course. <laughs> the only thing is Barb says I only have less than three minutes, so... Uh, but what I thought I would share with you all is uh, kind of the essence of what we are about, Chafer Seminary, that is. One of the distinctives is hermeneutics and a particular hermeneutic. You've heard the word literal interpretation over and over, and that's at the heart of everything that we do. And what I'd like to share is just a little snippet within three minutes that deals with literal interpretation. So when we speak of literal interpretation, that's not only the heart, I believe, of good hermeneutics, but it's the heart of the, the approach that we take at, at Schaefer. And don't tell anybody, but I believe that this course that I teach is the most important course that you can take in the seminary curriculum. In fact, you've been messing with my slides? <coughs> Did you put that in there, Barb? Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> anyway, uh, we call it literal interpretation. It's kind of an abbreviation for a more extended, you might say, technical description, grammatical, historical, contextual. And that more accurately describes it, but uh, commonly we will refer to it as the literal approach and what I want to do is distinguish what we mean by literal approach, because some of you may have been asked or some of you may even wonder, does that mean that there are no non-literal phrases in the Bible or do we interpret them in a strange way since we are literally approaching it? Well, one of the texts that we use is Mickelson, and I think this is the best description that I have of the essence of the hermeneutic that we utilize and has been discussed already in several talks that we've heard to find out the meaning of a statement for the author and for the first hearers or readers. This is the exegetical process. This is the goal. This is what we are aiming at. And once we know that, now we are in a position to be able to thereupon transmit that meeting to the modern readers. That's exposition. So this is the essence and the heart of what we do. And when we speak of a literal hermeneutic, the bottom line not only deals with particular phrases and meaning and that sort of thing, but the bottom line goal is to seek the author's intended meaning. That's the bottom line. What did Moses intend in the Old Testament, if you're in first five books? What did Luke intend, or whatever writer, New Testament, Old Testament? Bottom line, seeking the author's intended meaning. So that means that if the author intended to communicate something non-literal, we interpret it literally in the sense that that's what the intent of the author is. So that's what we mean by literal interpretation. In fact, one of the major hermeneutical principles, the way I describe it, is as a metaphorical principle. In other words, the literal approach includes a metaphorical Usage, in other words, how does how is the author intending his language? 
And I describe it as interpreting according to appropriate metaphorical conventions. And metaphorical language has its own conventions, and we observe those hermeneutically interpreting literally in this kind of specific sense. And let me use one example. There's all kinds of non-literal usages of language and words and phrases. Uh, let's take an example of symbols just to illustrate it to you, what we mean by a literal approach. And I'm going to use an example that we are familiar with in our culture, particularly those of you that are more technically minded and have a little bit of maybe science and mathematics in your background. I'm going to flash a symbol up there or a series of symbols. I'm not even going to give you the context of those symbols. And yet, because you're familiar with the culture in which we live in, you will not have any problem interpreting these symbols. And the point I'm making is this is the way that we interpret biblical symbols as well. We look at what did the author intend in giving whatever symbol that you find in Scripture, what was his intent, and sometimes you take into account the culture that he comes out of. But in our culture, if I flash this set of symbols, what does that mean? Lots of answers, and I, I can't hear them all, but I, I'm... There you go. What did Einstein mean when he said E equals MC squared? There you go. There's an engineer back there. <coughs> we cannot, the point I'm making, we cannot make E mean whatever we want it to make mean. And even the equal sign has some symbolic meaning that we attach to this kind of an arrangement of these set of symbolic indicators. So M has a particular meaning. In fact, C has a mathematical or a numerical meaning, but we are not free to assign our own meaning to that set of symbols. Even the superscript 2 has a particular position and meaning in that position. That's symbolic language. But in the context of physics, it has particular meaning we are not free to change it or make a meaning out of it, as is the tendency in Scripture. Oh, here's a symbol. Now I have a lot of latitude to perhaps import meaning into that symbol. And literal interpretation says, no, you go to what the author intended, just as we go to Einstein to see what he meant. We look at what... Maybe Paul meant in some passage in the book of Romans or whatever when he's using non-literal language, what did he mean? What was the meaning he assigned? That's literal interpretation of, in this case, symbolic language, literal meaning. Now, you have to take the rest of the course, because in the rest of the course I'll do the other things, but that's... Uh, that's from physics, but if you go to geometry, that has particular meaning as well, A equals pi r squared. Or if you do chemistry, that has particular meaning, and notice it has a 2 as well, but that 2 is different from the other 2. This is subscript 2. That has particular meaning, and in that 
chemistry environment, that has particular meaning that is intended, and it's clear in those that are in chemistry. And I've got a longer list here, trigonometry, dynamics, uh, again, dynamics. So symbolic language, common in our culture. Here are some from math and science. But the point I'm making, we interpret that in science literally. So also do we interpret symbols or metaphors or similes, whatever, we interpret them literally. That's the distinctive of Chafer Seminary. And you'll get a lot more of that if you take not only the most important course, but some of the others as well. So the trees of the field will clap their hands. Well, they clap. Is that, is, <laughs> uh, well, they're not trees of the field, so uh, what is that? <laughs> I put you on the spot. And, and the other thing is, how do we interpret three minutes? Is that literal? <laughs> is that allegorical? <laughs> that was great. That was really, really great. <laughs> I got excited before because uh, the guy was talking about Pi, pi Square, and I, I, I flashed back to Kenny and Ziggy's. <laughs> All right, well, we find ourselves here together again, uh, and uh, I suppose we probably should continue our conversation that we began uh, this afternoon. Looking at Messianic prophecy and the writings, and we began the Psalms. In fact, we began Psalm 2, but we didn't finish the New Testament's use of and recognition of the prophetic uh, aspects of Psalm 2. So we're going to get right into that as well. Uh, just to remind you, for those maybe some of you weren't uh, here this afternoon or it was such a heavy meal that you've forgotten since uh, we were together. But this is, you know, the nations are in an uproar and the peoples are devising a vain thing against uh, the Lord and his uh, anointed one. They're taking counsel and God scoffs, ha ha, uh, and laughs uh, and uh, is about to judge them. Uh, and it ends with this tremendous warning for the kings who are gathering together, taking counsel and uh, uh, plotting uh, evil against God and his Messiah. It says, now therefore, O kings, show discernment, take warning, O judges of the earth. And it's a reminder, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. And that last verse, verse 12, is super, super important and carries a hefty punch, neshach bar, kiss the sun. Worship the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So that's just a summary of what the uh, psalm is uh, speaking. Let's take a look at Acts 13. 33, this is Paul. Uh, and again, you know, we're, we're just quoting, and uh, you may say that a verse taken out of context is a pretext, 
or con job as uh, you know but um we're 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 literally just raising the buffet the prophetic buffet uh tonight and your job is to go and look at the context and see be a berean and make sure that i'm not taking these verses out of context but just pointing you in the direction so god has fulfilled this promise to our children to the jewish people in that he raised up jesus as it is written in the second psalm you are my son today i have begotten you a clear indication that paul is using psalm 2 prophetically romans he uses it again in his writing so that was preaching now what paul's writing who is declared the son of god with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness jesus christ our lord the entirety of the new testament well on the gospel of john in particular comfortably rests upon the foundation of the prophetic truths that are found within this psalm. Um, a verse I didn't share with you just now from earlier in Acts, uh, Acts chapter 4, 25 and 26. Uh, we see Peter is not using this psalm in a literal prophetic way, but it is, he's using this psalm, he's applying this psalm, speaking of the Gentile rulers who are plotting against uh, against God and His anointed, he uses it and applies it to the hostile Jewish leadership who were against the apostles. Paul quotes, which we just saw, from this psalm in order to demonstrate that Jesus was the resurrected Messiah. Can you imagine if it was not viewed by the Jewish people, if this was not an argument that uh, made sense to them, how in the world would it be a proof to the Jewish people? How would he rest his argument on the fact that Jesus is the Son, and therefore the resurrected Messiah. Well, likewise, Hebrews, let's see if we can get to Hebrews, yes. For which of the angels, which, by the way, I'm sorry, we're out of uh, my commentaries, uh, but uh, if you'd like to uh, order, I will waive shipping, uh, and uh, you can order tonight, and I'll have my assistant send it to, a, send it to you this week. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Hebrews 5, very, very important. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The imagery from Psalm 2 of Jesus being the son of God, very, very important in the New Testament. Even the trial of Jesus, Mark 14, 61. But he, Jesus, kept silent, did not answer. Again, the high priest, Cephas Caiaphas, was questioning him and saying to him, this was the crux of what the leadership who had assembled to put him on trial were trying to get to. And they asked him, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Because the Messiah, if you are the Messiah, you are then also the Son of the Blessed One. The Messiah is the Son of God. So are you or are you not the Son of God? John 1, 34. I myself have seen and testified, this is 
the Son of God. The concept of Jesus as Son of God, extraordinarily important. Even Paul's preaching in the synagogues again. Immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. Let's move on. Psalm 16. Very, very important. Psalm Again, a lot of this material is found in the Exploring Bible Prophecy from Genesis to Revelation book that was co-written by myself, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, Mal Couch, and Randall Price. So we have extra copies of that available if you'd like those. Um, I have set the Lord continually before me. Because He is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. And my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. I'm starting midway um, because I realize how much time I have and how much material I have to cover, and you make some allowances. Therefore my heart is glad, my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. This psalm, written by David, in the first person voice of the Messiah, his descendant. We don't know the specific circumstances of the writing of the psalm, the composition of the psalm. It begins with uh, God, uh, with a passionate uh, plea for God's preservation of the individual's life, but it concludes with a confirmation in the Lord's sustenance of his flesh and his soul. In the present and beyond death. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. On your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Some would understand the psalm in context as the poetic expression of David's immediate experience of divine deliverance from death. Many psalms appear only in New Testament hindsight to reveal a larger prophetic truth than the initial historical contents originally suggested. This psalm, however, does not fit into that nebulous category. The unambiguous apostolic teaching is that this psalm contains direct prophecy that is literally fulfilled and expected to be literally fulfilled. And so in the book of Acts, Peter manifestly affirms the prophetic aspect of David's writing and he makes the point that David, writing a thousand years earlier, this is at his great uh, Pentecost, midst of temple speech, a thousand years earlier David was writing, was nonetheless consciously aware that the subject he was addressing was the Messiah's resurrection. For David says of him, Brethren, I may confidently say to you, regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried. His tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he, who, David, was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him of an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, that's the Davidic covenant that we covered this afternoon, which is a prerequisite to understanding Peter's point in this passage. You don't get the Davidic covenant. You don't know what these the oath is to seat one of his descendants on a throne, an eternal throne, an undying, unshakable uh, kingdom, an eternal throne. He looked ahead. David, the prophet, 
looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Peter doesn't mince words. He addresses David's prophetic capacity, reminding his audience of what they probably already knew and should already know, and argued that David could not possibly have been writing about himself. He, was die he died, he was buried, and most assuredly David had not been resurrection, resurrected. Because God had made this beautiful covenant, the Davidic covenant, again, Remember, don't look for a great amount of creativity from theologians, right? Um, the covenant that God made with Noah, called the Noahic covenant, the covenant that God made with Abraham, we call the Abrahamic covenant. The Vedic covenant, so don't look for, but rather than the names, understand the concepts contained therein. Okay, and again, this idea that one of David's descendants would forever, not just for a long time, but forever rule over Israel. Well, the Holy Spirit shows David, allows him to look ahead and understand precisely how God's Davidic covenant promise of an eternal throne was to be fulfilled. An eternal throne, an unending dynasty, requires an immortal descendant. And the anointed one, Mashiach, would neither decompose nor be abandoned to the abode of the dead. In order to fulfill the Davidic covenant, the son of David would of necessity be resurrected. This is one of the clearest examples in the New Testament of the specific fulfillment, the literal fulfillment of messianic prophecy. There is no other way to interpret Peter's affirmation. But you may say, I've read commentaries that treat this uh, differently than direct uh, revelation or direct uh, prophetic fulfillment. Uh, and I would say that this is, that's an illegitimate way to address Peter's affirmation. The text says what it says. The apostle meant to say what he said, that he said what he meant. He was empowered and infused by the Holy Spirit. That's kind of the point of Acts 2 and the Pentecost moment. Peter could not have been mistaken in his interpretation. Neither could he have been creatively or imaginatively appropriating the psalm to fit his theological purpose with vibrant competence. He preached to the thousands of people assembled there in the temple courts. And one of the most exalted and revered figures in their history, David, in one of the most sacred portions of the Hebrew Scripture, the Psalms, had prophesied that the Messiah would be resurrected. Paul does the same thing. As for the fact city in Antioch. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, Acts 13, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. Paul masterfully 
demonstrates the necessity not only of Jesus' resurrection, but his exaltation, tying as did Peter the Davidic covenant with Psalm 16. The Messiah's resurrection, his subsequent immortality, that is what establishes the groundwork for the eventual fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And the Davidic covenant will be fulfilled not now, not already, but not yet. It will, it will wait when the kingdom comes. The kingdom of God is established. Um, although, in all fairness, it would probably not be inappropriate to understand Paul as affirming that Jesus' glorification had launched some kind of, in some way, an initial preliminary fulfillment. The door opened a little bit to the Davidic covenant, but it is in no way being fulfilled now. You can call it a down payment, maybe, as far as I would be willing to go. A down payment on the day when Jesus takes his seat on David's throne in Jerusalem. That is the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. All right. Um, the use of this uh, prophecy continues in Acts 13. Let's not take the time. Let's get right to Psalm 22. This is, oh, this is a hotsy-totsy one. This is hot stuff. Uh, if I were walking around with Psalm 22 in my hands, I'd be saying, hot stuff coming through, hot stuff. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer by night. I have no rest, yet you are holy, O oh you, who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. You know, as regards many Messianic Psalms, there is an interpretive difference. Teachers have, good men, teachers have, and women, as to exactly how much of this psalm, if any, right, but you know my position already, how much of the psalm can be classified as actual predictive prophecy. But you can't look at this psalm and say it corresponds to any events in the life of David that we are aware of. It doesn't fit the imagery of the psalm. We have in this psalm, basically, as Alan Ross would say, uh, the account of a righteous man who is being put to death by wicked men. There is not one word of confession of sin, no imprecatory sections uh, like other psalms that we look at. But Jesus himself, of course, will quote the psalm's opening verse when hanging on the cross, having taken upon himself the sin of mankind and consequently reaping the concentrated intensity of divine wrath. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet I recognize that you are holy. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered, and you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am, I am a worm, not a man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. 
All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag their heads, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, because he delights in him. So the author, David here, is portraying himself or the figure he's speaking in the voice of as a uh, uh, reproach and a figure of ridicule, ridicule. He describes the sneering insults, the contemptuous passerby's ridicule who view the Lord's failure to vindicate or to rescue this fellow as an indication of divine rejection, which of course corresponds, you know, to the gospel's description of the crowd's mocking of Jesus' faith, the absence of divine rescue. But the response of this individual, despite this experienced humiliation, there is a confident trust and trust that he has from birth. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast upon you. I was cast from birth. You have been my God for my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me. as a ravening and roaring lion. He calls on the Lord for deliverance from, granted, a beautiful poetic uh, description, but the content, basically, when you get through the poetry, overwhelming all surrounding enemies. And now in the next passage, we see physical agony described here that goes beyond any sickness or situation that can be imagined. Other than the symptoms endured by one undergoing the torturous procedure of crucifixion. Indeed, the following passage is a remarkably faithful point-by-point description of the experience Jesus has in the Gospels. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers have encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Oh, we talked about that yesterday. We'll talk about that in a moment. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So what's being described here? Physical impairment, severe physical impairment. Acute perspiration leading to dehydration. Odd skeletal dislocation and protrusion. Heart failure. and Most revealing in verse 16. The enemy's perforation of both his hands and his feet. The Masoretic text, we talked about this last night, has my hands and my feet like a lion. Okay? It's a corruption. Septuagint and some other manuscripts have not ka'ari like a lion, but ka'aru. So whether it's ka'ari, ka'aru, good luck will rub off when I shake hands with you. Uh, but um, I think the better, the better, um, the better passage, the better contextual sense is made from they pierced my hands, my feet. Like a lion means nothing. They look, whoops, they stare. The description continues with the victim's clothing being divided 
among ill-intentioned onlookers for the casting of lots. You know that that bears striking correspondence to what Jesus experienced on the cross. It's, it's, I, I find it really hard to imagine David actually experiencing anything close to what's being described here. Even making a whole heap of allowance for poetic hyperbole. And it is therefore quite difficult to avoid concluding that what David has written is actual, unambiguous, predictive prophecy. The description of physical suffering is followed by a cry for divine deliverance. Verse 19, But you, O Lord, be not far off. You, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life, from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. You answer me. I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. You that are descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. Extraordinary, because what we've now seen is a sea change from the previous content. Unexpectedly, the one who had experienced this previous multiplicity of agonies is present in the midst of the congregation of the Israelite faithful. It's enthusiastically, energetically extolling the Lord's virtues to his brethren. Somehow unrecorded between the couplets within the text, the described dire straits and the victim's cry has been miraculously answered and he's been rescued. That's a weird juxtaposition. It's a unnerving just juxtaposition in the text. You have this dramatic description and in a passage of praise, it jars one, makes it challenging to interpret unless, unless you allow the clarifying illumination that results from reading this psalm through the grid of Jesus' suffering, resurrection, and glorious reign within the messianic kingdom. Let's take a look and see how this psalm ends, how it concludes. The afflicted will eat, be satisfied. Those who seek Him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. Here's the action. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. Those who go down to the dust will bow before Him. Even He who cannot keep His soul alive. Posterity will serve Him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and declare His righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. This worldwide worship of the Lord. Somehow, the suffering of the protagonist in this psalm, somehow his suffering has resulted in universal recognition of the one God. So you have to ask, when you're honest with the text and you're approaching the text, what Hebrew poet could possibly have imagined that his suffering and his deliverance from death could have such a redemptive result. The only satisfying interpretive answer is the Messiah. Well, 
When they crucified him, they divided up his garments among them by casting lots. Matthew 27. That's a direct fulfillment of this literal prophecy. Those that were passing by, hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads. Matthew 27, 39 through 46. And saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So it's really important, not only that we have the uh, recognition that you have a correspondence in the psalm between uh, um, the, the, the sneering, but you have the abuse, you have the wagging of the lips and the, the making fun. And what is it that they're actually making fun of? If you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests also, along the scribes and elders, mocking him and save others. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. So you see, there is correspondence. Son of God is King of Israel. They are, they are terms that mean the same thing. Messiah. Son of God, Son of David, King of Israel. These are the same terms. And you have the people saying, hey, not the Son of God. Reject. And you have the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. You have the, whole, the, the, the common people and you have the fancy schmancy leadership saying the same thing. You think you're the Son of God. You think you're the Messiah. You think you're the King of Israel. You ain't nothing. It's exactly what's described in Psalm 22. Trust in God, let God rescue him now. If he delights in him, for he said, I am the Son of God. And again, you have in the same passage, Matthew bringing up Son of God. So Son of God, King of Israel, Son of God. It's a nice sandwich. It's a Messianic sandwich. I'm fixated on food tonight. Sorry, guys. The robbers who had been crucified. And now the robbers... Getting into the act. Running the gamut of insult. They were insulting him with the same words. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, In Aramaic, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Exactly what is written in Psalm uh, Psalm, uh, 22. Matthew's writing this because Jesus said it, and these events actually happened, this is uh, something that Matthew doesn't want you to miss, that there is a literal fulfillment of Psalm 22 at work here, and the author of Hebrews makes an allusion to this as well, an allusion to this in chapter 2, not of the suffering stuff, but the rejoicing stuff, of the victorious, conquering, resurrected Messiah after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for whose which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I'll proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Identifying the happy worship leader leading the congregation and praising God with the individual who is suffering and now came through uh, in uh, Psalm 22. It's the Messiah. Moving on now. We have to make treks. Psalm 45. Say Psalm 45. I don't see that's a, that's a messianic prophecy. Well, let's see. My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird on your sword. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor. 
and in your majesty, and in your majesty ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows, whew, they are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemy. Your throne. Oops. Oh God. It's forever and ever. Wait a minute. I thought I was talking about the king. See, Psalm 45 is characterized as a royal wedding song. It's public recitation, likely designed uh, to be incorporated within the festivities of a king's marriage. But nestled snugly within this psalm is an audacious assertion concerning the divine nature of the king. And it startles you in its very matter-of-factness. The king himself... See, you're lulled into the sense of security. Okay, I know what we're talking about. We're, we're glorifying the king. Hey, he's awesome, right? And he's, he's wonderful. And all of a sudden, verse 6, he's called God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. Well, who's God here? If the king is God, then who is the king's God? We have God and we have the king, who somehow the king is also God. It's very confusing to me. It's very confusing. It's very <laughs> many, many interpret this passage. Maybe even the majority. Maybe, maybe you've taught this. this maybe you've looked at it and say, oh, this is for sure. This is uh, Hebrew hyperbole. This is, this is poetic hyperbole. But it's important to recognize that as with many messianic prophecies, the author has interwoven a measure of tense ambiguity in his designation of divinity to a king that can only be relieved, that ambiguity, the attention can only be relieved in the light of the New Testament's revelation of Messianic incarnation. I really love what Spurgeon had to say. Some see here in this psalm, Psalm 45, some see here Solomon and Pharaoh's daughter only. They are short-sighted. Others see both Solomon and Christ. They are cross-eyed. Well, <laughs> Well-focused spiritual eyes see here Jesus only, or if Solomon be present at all, it must be like those hazy shadows of passers-by which cross the face of the camera and therefore are dimly traceable upon a photographic landscape. I love that. I really do. I really do. Well, author of Hebrews, he, he thinks this is messianic. And he uses it right in the first chapter. This puts his cards right on the table. Chapter 1. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. That's like a. That's not one that I would lead with, Psalm 45 in demonstrating literal fulfillment of Messianic prophecy. Um, but I think it's one to use as a, like a supporting player, right? Maybe 
best supporting verse? You know, not 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 the uh, best best star. You know, uh, but the best supporting. Yeah, that's a pretty good one. Right? Well, at least the author of Hebrews thought so. All right, let's uh, go to Psalm seventy-two. Psalm seventy-two is kind of exciting. There's a couple that are in a row that uh, are speaking of the messianic age to come. Uh, <coughs> it's it's almost like the uh, the uh, uh, compiler of the. Uh, of the Psalms said, this is enough of the suffering and the uh, the agony and the, the let's give some happy messianic themes here. Let's talk about the future. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness and you're afflicted with justice, that the mountains bring peace to the people, the hills and righteousness. So what we're talking about here is a uh, a righteous ruler who will judge the people with righteousness and with justice and bring shalom. And again, righteousness emphasized here. He will vindicate the afflicted of the people, save the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. This is exactly what Isaiah will be talking about. This is, this is almost the quintessential description if you were to ask uh, your average Jewish person, who actually believed the Bible was really, you know, the Word of God. Um, if, you'd, if you ask a Jewish person, let's say, the first century, um, what's the Messiah going to be like? What, what will the Messianic age be like? They would describe this. Let them fear you while the sun endures as long as the moon throughout all the generations. May he come down like rain upon the mown grass, like show, showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish an abundance of peace till the moon is no more. This goes back to the Davidic covenant. This goes back to that enduring dynasty, that unshakable kingdom, that time of unprecedented and permanent peace and security that the ultimate son of David will be bringing. May he also rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the sea. A universal dominion, not just limited to the land of Israel, but all the nations. Let the nomads of the desert bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. Let the kings of Tarshish and the islands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seva offer gifts and let all kings bow down before him. All nations serve him. This is speaking of a future messianic ruler, the ultimate King David. And you can see how easy it would be to want to focus just on this happy news. This is a happy expectation. When Messiah comes, peace, Israel, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the, the land of Israel will be the chief of nations. There will be universal peace and dominion of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he'll deliver the needy when he cries for help. He'll be, uh, his rule will be um, characterized by justice and righteousness and perfection. Right? Um, the afflicted also, whom, him who has no helper. He will have compassion on the poor and the needy. The lives of the needy he will save. This really is, this is the quintessential stuff. This is everything the Messiah is expected to be. Why, why do most Jewish people who actually think about the concept of Messiah, why do they reject Jesus as Messiah? Did he bring this about? Did this occur? If not then he wasn't the Messiah. See, makes sense. You have to balance the various different pictures and coordinate them. And, well, that's what the New Testament does for us. But it would be very difficult to do prior to actually seeing 
how it plays out in the life of Jesus when he comes, when he enters into uh, human history. He will have compassion on the poor, the needy, the lives of the needy he will save, rescue their life from oppression and violence, and their blood will be precious in his sight. So may he live, may the gold of Sheba be given to him. All tribute, let them pray for him continually, let them bless him all day long. Abundance of grain, his name will endure forever. Verse 17, end of it. Let men bless themselves reflexively by him. Let all nations and all the Gentiles call him blessed. I like this. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse. And this is how the Psalms of David come to a conclusion in the Psalter. Now, you say, is that really what the Jewish people expected? Well, again, the Targum, the Aramaic paraphrase, reads like this. O God, give the King Messiah the laws of thy justice and thy righteousness to the son of King David. May his name be remembered forever, his name which was made ready even before the Son came into being by his merit. All nations shall be blessed, what we just read, and they shall say it as well with him. This is King Messiah. This is a wonderful passage to describe the Messianic era, the Messianic age. Psalm 96 is actually similar to it. Worship the Lord in holy attire, tremble before Him. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. So again, justice, righteousness, characterizing His rule and His reign. Let the field result, the, uh, exult. Uh, all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for He is coming. He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and His peoples in faithfulness. There is a coming judge, part of a messianic age, part of the messianic expectation that the Jewish people had. And that's why we see in Acts chapter 10. But of the Son, he says, mm, your throne, O God, forever and ever. Well, I, I think that's actually Hebrews there. Let's just go to Acts 17. Because he's fixed a day, this is where we're going to go. Because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So the judge is coming. He will distribute justice throughout Creation. We move to Psalm 98. I'm just looking at three verses, four verses. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, shout joyfully before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all it contains, the world and all that dwell in it. It reads just like the previous psalm. The rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together with joy. They're like little partners, uh, these two psalms together, because again, the same content. Before the Lord, for He's coming to judge the earth, He will judge the earth with righteousness and the people with equity. Revelation 19. So I have an open, behold, a white horse. He who sat on it is called faithful and true. In righteousness, he judges and wages war. The imagery without question is taken from these Psalms. I found that Acts passage, by the way, that I uh, didn't have on the slide. This is uh, Peter, Acts chapter 10, 42. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge 
of the living and dead. So both Peter and Paul referring to these psalms and the concept of Messiah coming as judge. In fact, when they're grasping to communicate to Gentiles, Peter especially, grasping, how can I communicate the messianic concept to a living room full of Gentiles, this is Cornelius, right? Living room full of Gentiles who have very little background in messianic prophecy, what will they understand? Which, which aspect of the Messiah can we grasp, can we grab that we can make understandable? And they use the idea of the judge who is coming. All right. Now, this will be our final psalm for the night. Uh, and uh, we'll just really focus on, uh, on four verses. Right? Because we're running out of, out of time. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, or Jehovah says to Adoni, to my Lord. That's much easier than what we have in our English Bibles. Much clearer to see. Septuagint is, is likewise con- confusing because it's a uh, you know, curio. But the Lord says to my Lord, Jehovah says to Adonai, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Now this, again, very, very important psalm. It's an extremely important psalm. You have two lordly individuals here, right? One guy is the Lord. Then you have another Lord. And then you have the author, David, who is referring to my Lord. So if the first Lord refers to God, to Jehovah, which it does, and the second Lord it's David's Lord, then obviously neither of these lordly individuals could have been David, unless he has a split personality. Which, you know, I mean, you, you never underestimate the creativity of biblical exegetes. It was universally accepted that David neither had been resurrected nor had he ascended into heaven, which raises the question, if God is the first Lord and David is the my of my Lord fame, then who is David's Lord. His only Lord was God Himself. So, interesting. And then it builds, Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power and holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. This is actually famously difficult uh, and perhaps even corrupted uh, verse. Difficult to translate in Hebrew. But that's pretty good using the Septuagint uh, uh, translation. The Lord has sworn, but this is where the action is, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So you have this picture of a Messiah, David's Lord. You have Jehovah, you have a Messiah, you have David looking and writing about this. And then you have the fact that the Messiah is not only king, but he's a priest. But he's not a Levitical priest. Because you can't mix the office of priesthood and kingship. It wasn't done. We ha- the Jewish people were the first ones to come up with the idea of separation of powers. Right? 
It wasn't our founding fathers, okay? It was an idea that was found in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. Separation of powers. Priests were priests. Kings were kings. From David on, kings came from Judah. Priests descended from Levi, from Aaron, specifically. Right? So the only time you get a priest-king in the uh, entirety of, uh, of the Old Testament is Melchizedek, this figure from Genesis. The only time you get a priest-king in Jewish history, aside from Melchizedek, king of Jerusalem, king of Salem, is priest-king of Salem, is the Hasmonean kings, the, the Maccabean kings. Right? hundred years. They, they're Levitical. They took the role of king for themselves. They say, one-stop shopping, king and priest. Right? <laughs> it's, a, it's a good solution. It's a good solution. But you don't have that. And so you have to have, if the Messiah is going to be a priest, he cannot be a Levitical priest. So, the only example we have from Scripture is this figure, again, talk about enigmatic figures, this fellow Melchizedek, the, uh, the righteous king. He's David's son, not descended from Levi, descended from Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh come. And David's priesthood by divine design, or this uh, Messiah's priesthood rather, by divine design would necessarily need to circumvent the law of Moses and find his basis instead on that of the inscrutable figure of Genesis 14:18, that righteous king, Melchizedek, priest of the Most High. You can call him Melchizedek if you like, but the <laughs> pronunciation is Melchizedek. Um, and his priesthood possesses, and this is a detail not to be missed, it's an eternal nature. You are a priest forever. Don't miss. Every word is a gem. Every word is essential and important. Right? And the psalm concludes, we won't read it, uh, but a description of divine wrath and judgment to come upon the nations when Messiah comes to inaugurate his kingdom. Now, of course, Jesus, oh my goodness, Jesus absolutely would vex the Pharisees. I think mean, he took a lot of delight in vexing the Pharisees by posing the perplexing issue in Psalm 110. This is the most uh, uh, commonly quoted, used psalm, passage of Scripture in the New Testament. Pound for pound, this is the one that's used the most. It really is uh, important. If David calls him Lord, how can... Uh, how is he his son? Verse 45. And then, of course, Peter uses the same point. This is a, this is a very powerful point because 3,000 Jewish people say, okay, I'm convinced. Right? These are, these, are these are righteous Jewish people who came to worship the pilgrimage festival at Shavuos, at Shavuot, at, uh, at Pentecost. And Peter says couple of uh, scriptures tied together with a beautiful uh, uh, sermon. Short one, though. Right? Remember the, the sermon of Peter? He actually doesn't even finish his sermon. He's interrupted. And somebody says to him in the crowd, Wow, what shall we do? I've never had that happen to me. I don't know if anybody's ever... 
interrupt in the middle of my message or I'm running up to a conclusion. Wow, wow what shall we... Uh, no, I'm, I'm still waiting. But uh, uh, I take heart from uh, the, uh, the book of Acts. Uh, <laughs> but Peter uses this. It's not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at thy right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Very interesting. Hebrews 1.13, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever. This is the book of Hebrews 5.6, according to the order of Melchizedek. So to sit at the right hand, this figure, whomever he may be, this figure is pictured as sitting at the right hand of God. Now, sitting at the right hand of a king, of a monarch in the ancient Near East, indicated the level of authority of the person sitting at the right hand of the monarch. And it is arguably um, on the same level an equality of power, an equality of authority, for example, like David sits Sheba, uh, uh, or Solomon rather sits Sheba. Uh, it's, it's a matter of sharing authority. And so if the person sitting at God's, Jehovah's, right hand has the same authority, then that must make the Messiah somehow in some way equal to God. It's really a perplexing problem, isn't it? Thank God we have the New Testament to help us to understand how it actually is sorted out. But we, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, may not always give us uh, the answers. But it sets up the questions. So a familiarity, understanding the New Testament, requires a familiarity with the questions that are already set up in the Hebrew Bible that are then answered by the New Testament. If you are unaware of the questions that we go into the New Testament with, then it's no wonder there's so much confusing teaching out there today regarding who Jesus is and what he is doing. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope sure and steadfast, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner, where? Within the veil, becoming a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews, we don't have time to go into it. All 28 verses of this, we don't have time to go into it. A whole chapter is devoted to what it means for our Messiah to be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of Melchizedek. So chapter 7 continues like this. Now, let's just end tonight by reminding ourselves of the synthesis of what we can learn from the law regarding messianic prophecies. A coming Messiah, born of woman, will defeat Satan. Genesis 3. The Messiah will reverse the curse. Genesis 5. Messiah will be the seed of Abraham, Genesis 22. The Messiah will be a Jewish king from the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49. The scepter will not depart till Shiloh come. The coming of a Messiah will be heralded by the astronomical sign of a star. I see him, but not near, not yet. The Messiah will be a Jewish prophet uniquely similar to Moses, the prophet like Moses, Deuteronomy 18. Let's see what we learned today, this afternoon and this evening from the writings. The Messiah will be the ultimate son of David, the Vedic covenant. First Chronicles 17, 17-14. 
The Messiah will be the Son of God. Psalm 2. The Messiah will be resurrected from the dead. Psalm 16. The Messiah will suffer and be exalted. Psalm 22. The Messiah is a divine king, priest of the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110. This is one that we didn't get into, Psalm 118, but you can read it on your own. And in fact, remember, all the stuff is uh, in the uh, Exploring Bible Prophecy book. The Messiah will be a stone rejected by foolish builders. That's a, that's a prophecy. It's not a literal prophecy, uh, a little fulfillment. Uh, it is a prophecy that is applied by Jesus and then consequently by the apostles to the leaders of his day, saying, I am the stone, you <laughs> that makes you the foolish builders, right? So <laughs> who, who are the parts? <laughs> here, are the, here are the roles that we need to play, right? We've got the stone, uh, and then we have the foolish builders. Okay, I'll be the stone, and you, ha-ha. <laughs> <laughs> you know? and, and Peter did that as well uh, before the Sanhedrin, to, to, to great effect. It got them very upset. Um, <laughs> but those, isn't that a lot that we've seen? We haven't even gotten to Isaiah, right, yet. <laughs> Or the minor Zechariah. Right? That's a lot of information that has been given to us before we crack Matthew 1 1, right? This, it, plus all the stuff about the future messianic age. And of course, that's what trips people up. That's what has tripped the Jewish people up for 2,000 years. That you have these numerous prophecies about a glorious messianic age, but you have this other stuff and this king and, and, and the nations will come down and bow before him and, 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 and yet this Jesus was crucified. What are we to make of that? That's, it, it, he is a stumbling stone. Right? But I think it's amazing what the scripture has given to us. Let's have a couple questions and then call it an evening. Unless I've worn you out. You Okay. All right. Good. So, are there? So, is there anything messianic in the Hebrew Bible? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When are you going to answer that? Yeah. Yeah, I'll answer. Yeah. Any questions over here? Okay. Take your time. It's okay. We have all night. Would you, um, I hate to add to your list, but would you add, can you flip back a slide to your other one? Yeah, yeah, sure, of course. So this one? Uh, yeah. Between uh, point two and point three, would you add Genesis 9, I think it's verse 26, about blessed be the God of Shem. In other words, the Messiah must come of Noah's three sons. He's got to come from Shem's line. And yeah. from Shem, we get the word Semitic. I don't know how clear that text is. I don't know if you, why you – is it wrong to include that on the list? The yeah, words? no, it's not, it's not wrong to include it on the list, but you go out on a further limb than I am willing to go with that particular – I mean, it's true. I mean, obvi obviously, if you're going uh, to, uh, to Abraham, then you've already jumped to Shem. I think you can start with Abraham. Um, the Bible, when it's uh, New Testament especially, when it argues for the identity of Jesus as the Messiah, it doesn't go back to Noah. Uh, the, the New Testament doesn't really care very much about Shem. Okay? The, the issue is, because you jump back to Adam, yeah, okay, uh, but from Adam you're jumping to Abraham. 
right? And so the action, if you will, for the Jewish person begins with Abraham. So sure, you know, Semitic and Shaman, but yeah, true, but I wouldn't go there from the text. I wouldn't, I wouldn't use, that would be a rickety foundation to start building on. I think a very solid foundation, you know, if you're going to build a house, construct a house, you want to start with Genesis 3.15, um, and then you can, if you like, skip Genesis 5, it's okay. It's an optional one thrown in, uh, no extra charge. Um, but then you've got to go, and you, Abraham is your next level there. And then you're absolute, and then from Abraham, obviously you're building Isaac and Jacob because of the Abrahamic covenants. Um, but then you go right to Judah, and you've got a very solid foundation that is unshakable, and nobody can, can prevail against that. All right. Okay, over here. Uh, maybe. I missed part of it. I think you laid out some categories of messianic prophecy early on in your slides. I did. Um, is this just one of the categories? This is no. literal. Okay. Yes. yes. So, like, well, if you want analogical and and, uh, and illustrations and typology, again, that's in uh, that's in the uh, uh, the book. Uh, but we're we're trying to make a case right now based upon a literal fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, what could be expected, not how it's applied. Uh, and recognized later on. I'm looking for a literal fulfillment of prophecy. So like the, the yes. litur liturgy of the Hebrew tabernacle and all the sacrifices and stuff, you would consider that messianic too? I'm not looking for types. I'm not looking okay. for, for symbols. I'm looking for literal prophecies. I gave you those, those uh, various different uh, alternatives to literal prophecy because that's how it should. I don't want you to be confused when you read Matthew and you get to Hosea 11.1 1, and it says, out of Egypt I've called my son. I don't want you to go back and say, hey guys, I found a messianic prophecy. And the person looks at the passage in Hosea and says, this is not a prediction. This is not talking about the Messiah. This is talking about, about Israel. Right, and you don't know what you're talking about. So you want, that's a way to undermine your your argument when you're uh, when you're discussing can Jesus really be the Messiah? Right? It's a life and death issue, which is why I take it deadly seriously. We got one more question. It's me. All right. Uh, Michael has told me many times that he believes that every psalm is messianic. Comment on that, please. Michael has a, and it, it, this is why this book is very interesting. That he wrote the Messianic Hope because he bases a, one of his presuppositions is that um, the design of the Hebrew canon is messianic. So the the final compilation of how the canon is arranged, um, the order of the prophets, the order of the 150 psalms within the, the Psalter, that it all is designed by people who are trying to emphasize the messianic uh, hope within the text. And that's one of the great arguments he has in his book, and that by design the Hebrew Bible is pointing you to the Messiah. So the very nature why some uh, passage, like we, we saw tonight, uh, Psalm, uh, what was it, Psalm 98, 96, 78, whatever it was, uh, 72. These psalms are, are thematically linked 
um, to talk about a messianic age. You have suffering in the beginning. You have a messianic age to come. Um, then you have uh, the idea that the Messiah is not just the great king, but he's actually a priest king, like Melchizedek. This Psalm 110 comes where it comes because it follows all the layers. So he's got a great... It, it's a great thesis. It's a, it's a great idea. Um, I'm not 100% there, honestly. I'm, I'm not 100% buying it to the program, but it absolutely has captured my attention um, and is worth discussing. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's what I thought. Yeah. There's a lot there, and he's given me his resource books for it and everything. And I yeah, yeah, yeah. It's based largely on Salhammer's work, uh, and uh, I find it very, very interesting. Yeah, Salhammer has an introduction to the Pentateuch. Yes. which I've read is absolutely it's a monumental phenomenal piece of work. and and, yes. and messian very messianic. Yes, and I don't think it's in logos. Uh, no, it's not in logos yet. Yeah, very and I found it twice on my bookshelf, so you know it's <laughs> <laughs> I know that never happens to you. <laughs> Since Dan's up here, I'm going to ask him to close us, dismiss us in closing prayer. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for an absolutely exciting day spent studying your word. We are excited by this. We are blessed by it. We pray that this evening as we retire from this place that we will rest and be ready to go again tomorrow because we know we have another challenging but blessing day ahead of us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.